Welcome to Gaining the Technology Leadership Edge, a podcast for tech executives. We provide strategies and tactics to help executives succeed and further their career goals. With interviews from industry experts, leaders, and innovators, this show will surely get you on the edge of your seat with thought-provoking advice on how to stay ahead of the competition. Welcome to Gaining the Technology Leadership Edge, a podcast exploring the latest trends, strategies, and insights in technology leadership. We will discuss the most important topics and ideas shaping the industry today. From emerging technologies to digital transformation and beyond, join us to learn all of the juicy secrets of tech leaders, their biggest successes and failures, on our quest for gaining that all-important technology edge. Are you ready? Let's get started. Our guest today is Trish Pandya. She's a talent acquisition leader and former stand-up comedian slash improv actor with 10 plus years experience in the San Francisco startup arena for startups that empower minorities, including the female, minority, and underrepresented communities in the San Francisco Bay Area and aspires to do this nationwide. She's currently the senior manager of talent acquisition at Alexio, an open source data orchestration software for the cloud for enterprise companies. She aspires to spread the word with a twisted sense of humor about her views on talent acquisition and recruiting, thoughts on diversity and unbiased hiring, scaling teams with structure, the importance of mentorship, and of course, the crazy world of working in tech. So welcome to the show, Trish. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. I really appreciate being here. So so tell me about this uh Spreading the word with a twisted sense of humor. I love that phrase. <laughs> you know, it's really interesting. Um, so I've done, I did stand-up comedy. I've done improv acting. And um, I think the reason I did it, obviously I'm a middle child, right? So that's the easy foundational basis, <laughs> but uh, a lot more history there. But one thing I realized that, you know, while I was doing stand-up comedy, that was my, you know, what I was doing at night during day. Um, I've always worked at startups. And so you have to have a twisted sense of humor because when you work at a startup, everything changes constantly. You know, I basically say, you know, when you were at a traditional company, I, I can't give any names, but a traditional company, we know, you know, the playbook has been written out. And so, you know, you have everything structured. So whatever's going to happen on day one, it will happen on day one, day two, day, day two. When you work at a startup, what happened on day one is maybe going to happen and happening on day two, probably not. So you have to laugh at it when there's something that's constant change and some people aren't really made for startups. And you can tell by, I can explain it through interviews um, or don't want to be working as startups. And sometimes they realize it too, but you have to laugh at things when there's lots of changes and things that are really good or really bad. You have to have a twisted sense of humor. And that's how I get by um, even how I influence uh, executive leaders. I honestly compare it to dating to make it more digestible and understanding. So some people who might be a little more rich don't understand, might not like that. But for me, it's actually worked quite well. Um, and just saying like, you know, this is really technical. There's a lot of structure, but let's add some humor to it to make it more digestible. So what do you think is the the biggest challenge right now for hiring in the tech industry? I think right now, I know there's some slowdown happening, but I do think it's coming up. I know a lot of people are saying, oh, this is happening. I, the biggest challenge right now is I'm seeing a lot of jobs that have been open for more than three to five months. And I think there's two reasons. One is that ultimately it comes down to leadership and the hiring manager who hasn't figured out what they want. So I've seen this over and over again, where they have a job open 
And then they go through the cycle of interviews, get to the final sample size of candidates, and they don't really like them and they haven't figured out why. And so I know you mentioned gut-based interviewing. I actually am against that and I can talk about that more. And then they start over, they tell all the candidates, hey, we're gonna start over or we're gonna redefine the role. And then basically go back to square one and they eventually find the person after three, four, six months. That's the biggest challenge in hiring that I've seen in this market because they only have one role open and so they have to find this perfect person, which does not exist. Um, and the second part is, um, I think it's more about candidates really figuring out what they want too. I think a lot of us are just saying, we're just gonna apply what throws at the wall, but figuring out if that even culture works out for them. Um, and so those are the two ca the caveats that I'm seeing right now. But I think the first one is like the biggest thing I've seen over and over again, whether it's in this market or any market in the recruiting I've done in the few years. So when a position's open that long, what sort of impact does it have on the business? I mean, it's, it's a financial impact. It's a resources impact because you have to think about it. Um, let's say there's three people on my team and John Doe or Jane Doe quit or, you know, and they have to backfill the position or even find a new person, it's thousands of dollars. If you look at the cost per hire, you're losing thousands of dollars when you backfill a position, when you have to lose somebody because you, maybe you didn't hire, look out, there's some flags on both sides. Um, but I think it's at least like $30,000 know, for about three months. Um, it's, it's pretty bad. And also on the second part of it is that your existing team is saying, why is my hiring manager not finding the right person? We interviewed some really good people and then they're over-resourced and they're starting to create resentment as well. So it makes it a negative impact on the culture of the team as well if they haven't explained because I can see, you know, any hiring manager will probably have their right-hand person, probably a, you know, a strong individual contributor who's their right-hand person who influences things. And that strong individual contributor is going to be really frustrated. I've seen it over and over again, like, hey, I really like this person. What happened here? And... The problem is that hiring managers are not leaning on their right-hand person to really influence them because, like I said, a lot of hiring managers are thinking they figured it out and they're making it thinking that hiring is like a sole thing for them and the burden is on them when it really should be the team and the person, people that they trust on the team to do it. So do you think like um, these days, do you think like networking with other people um, is important for a hiring manager? to maybe kind of keep a pipeline of potential um, candidates? I think it's always good. I always have this philosophy of, you know, let's say you talk to a good candidate, a hiring manager, anybody. And you, I say it all the time. I always say, and I've seen it when I was at Credit Karma and other places, you know, we've hired, we interviewed people who might be too junior for, you know, a senior software engineer role. And I said, you know what? everyone really likes you. It's not a matter of if we're going to hire you. It's just going to be a matter when, when we are like, you know, when we over-resource on senior people, um, I think it's important to do that. It's also important to making sure that the hiring managers communicate that. It's important to network, but um, I think that if you just focus on back-channeling somebody on their reputation, if you back-channel anybody, if they, let's say you connect with somebody you can connect with them, but you really don't know the quality of their work. You might know it through through somebody else. It's best for you to still, referrals are always good, right? Somebody you can qualify, but the secondary need is that somebody who is easily qualified can be somebody who applied or somebody that the recruiter reached out on LinkedIn or something like that. 
So you mentioned it earlier. Tell me your thoughts on using your gut when hiring someone. The problem with gut hiring is that people use hire somebody who is exactly like them. That's a really simple answer. So I know a lot of people like, I want to hire somebody. I want to hire a salesperson. You know, with somebody who has an East Coast mentality like me, who's going to go, 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 right? So you want an aggressive East Coaster who's exactly like you. Um, I've also seen like, I want to hire somebody I can have a beer with. You're not hiring your friends. You're hiring somebody who's qualified. And what that leads to is that you're hiring somebody exactly like you. And that is really removing from diversity. And the reason why diversity is important, I know it's that people think of it as a checkbox. It's really not. For the company to succeed, you need to hire somebody who thinks really differently from you. So for me, I'm naturally a big picture person. I will, every time I've hired somebody or, you know, I tell people who like, what are your thoughts on that is hire somebody who's more detail oriented. Somebody thinks so differently from you. Not only is it good for you to get a balance there, but it's good for the business. The business is not going to grow and do better if you hire a bunch of mini-me's. And I've seen it happen a lot. Um, there's nothing wrong with hiring people um, from different backgrounds. I knew a lot of salespeople, like, I want to hire somebody who played football. Well, that narrows it down to, what, 16 people? You know what I mean? So there are people who have comp competed in competitive things, somebody who did anything competitive, you know, it doesn't even have to be a sport. Somebody who had, you know, participated in a networking event where they had to have the best feature or anything like that. And somebody who, what they really want to do is in somebody's competitive or they want somebody who was a football team. Okay, so you want somebody who's a team player who knows how to be collaborative and knows how to take direction. That literally opens up the pool to like a, a lot more people than somebody worked on a, who played on a football team. So, but if you're, you know, you know, when I mentioned gut hiring, um, I was more thinking about, you know, I'm sitting and I'm interviewing someone and for whatever reason, I'm getting this nagging feeling that like, they're just not going to be a good fit. Um, I can't necessarily pinpoint why, um, but my experiences is telling me this, anytime I hire this kind of person, this is what happens to my team. Do you discourage that? Yes, absolutely. I discourage okay. that because your previous experience, maybe a post-traumatic stress disorder from something from back then. I don't know what it is, but maybe you have some trauma there. I get it. I'm like, oh, I've seen this one before. This person was a terrible person, right? Um, and I'm like, nope, nope, not going to touch that. Um, the most important thing is before you go into the interview, is the burden is really on as the interviewer. You have to think about it. So if somebody's not giving you the answer that you want, did you pry into asking the answer? What you should go into saying, I have a whole checklist with my teams is saying, um, you know, obviously provide, make them feel comfortable. Do not do the prove it to me interviewing, like testing them. And then, so when it comes to a point where like, I'm not getting the answers that I want, we'll say, I really want to learn more about you. I want to pry into this. Now, if they're giving you evidence, which I say is answers, I call it evidence, that they're not giving you quality answers you're looking for, and it's based off the interview plan that you've laid out. I'm qualifying, for example, for this person has really strong collaboration skills. And if this person is giving you evidence in the interview saying, I've only worked by myself, I only like working by myself, okay, there's evidence here to say, okay, this person is not right for the role. So that's where you, it's really on the hiring leader to really figuring out what exactly questions you're looking for, not only from a technical or, you know, 
when you look at the job description, the qualifications perspective, but also like a soft skill. Because at the end of the day, if somebody isn't proactive, if someone doesn't know how to deal with ambiguity, you know, if somebody needs to get, be spelled at exactly what to do, dealing with ambiguity is the opposite of that. Hey, I need you to figure out what Excel can do here. I'm giving me a simple example. Mm -hmm. If someone is not proactive, can't deal with ambiguity as well as um, somebody who is comfortable with asking questions. That's really the soft skills in a startup from what I've seen has typically worked for people who thrive. So what kind of interview process, I shouldn't say interview process, what kind of hiring process do you advocate for? Like what steps do you follow when you're trying to fill a position? Yeah, I think it's more, I have a pretty structured hiring process when I work with my hiring partners. One is providing an end date of when you want this offer to go out. So let's say I'm making it September 1st. We want to make benchmark that and make sure I have a really, really strong intake meeting. Meaning is like, I want to make sure they know exactly what they're looking for. It's like dating. If you're like, oh, I want somebody who's really smart and funny. Well, okay, everyone is, get over it. And what's your version of smart and funny, right? Because um, my version of smart and funny is way more twisted than most people. So I think we need to figure out what that means. So if you want to hire somebody with the intake meeting with the hiring manager, I want to hire um, a, a finance person who can lead teams and knows how to collaborate with junior people on our team. And somebody who's, you know, can work really well with NetSuite. Okay, well, let's go into what that looks like. And if they go, when I go into the soft skills, I really want somebody who can collaborate and mentor. Okay, so we go into the interview process and we lay out the interview plan. Tell me about the questions you want to ask. That would mean when you ask about mentoring. And what are the evidence of question answers that you want from them to type of answer? Someone says, I mentor a lot. We'll explain how, well, really hands-on, this is a methodology I use to mentor people who come out of school, and I actually have a, a plan to be able to do that. I've done it before. Well, if that's a satisfactory answer for the hiring manager, we make sure that's covered in the interview plan so they can go into the interview plan with a plan of attack, right? They know exactly what the ideal answer they want to get or something around that versus the non-ideal answer is, I like mentoring people, but they should be able to figure out what they want to do. I'm making an example here then they're probably not qualified, right? Makes sense. So um, used to be really common in the tech industry. I'm not sure how it is today, but um, how do you feel about um, testing, like testing their technical skills? If it's a software engineering test, or I understand like an engineering technical interview, um, I do believe it should be a live whiteboarding interview. I don't believe in giving them a standardized test. Um, because first of all, it's really poor candidate experience. I have so many strong appearances about candidate experience, how it's free and it's everything. Um, but the second part is that when you give somebody a test, they can Google it, they can figure it out, they're going to spend time on it. The fact that if you want to just qualify, if they just spent time on it and they're showing that they're being proactive and doing the homework, then, then that's fine, but it is a turnoff. If you're using as evidence to qualify somebody in their answers, if they're if you're going using their test answers as a way to qualify them, that is a really bad um, indicator because you're giving them the ability to talk to their friends, Google, all of that. Also, um, most people who are qualified aren't going to do tests. If you're doing a technical interview, like a software engineering interview, I support doing live whiteboarding with another engineer on the team because they're going to not be able to answer everything. 
And so you're asked, you're testing them to see if they can collaborate with you. If they're somebody's asking a coding question and the interviewer says, I'm not sure about this. Can you clarify exactly what you're asking of me? You know, you can work with this person because they're asking questions and bouncing ideas off of you. And that way a test does not qualify for that. You know, I completely agree with you on that. I think that the whiteboarding, if you're going to do any kind of testing at all, the white live whiteboarding during an interview um, is essential because it shows you whether the person can think conceptually. I mean, that's for a software engineer. That to me is the biggest issue. Um, I don't always care how they get the job done, but I do care that they understand the approach, right? Um, I mean, I can tell you uh, most candidates shy away from those tests because like I, I had years ago, I had an interview for a big software company that um, was contracted with some major school districts. And they basically were that, they're that company where you log in and you can see what your children's grades are and et cetera. And they're like, yeah, we're in the middle of redesigning our um, software. And we want to see what you, what kind of approach you would use on a, on the front end for this piece. Well, like six months later, after I got turned down for the job, they were using my interface that I created. Whoa, and it's, and you just kind of say to yourself, yeah, they're taking your, you're taking, free, taking your information. Yeah. Free software development for, for them, you know, as part of an interview process. And also like at the time, I had 30 plus years experience. I had plenty of references. They could have called those references and been like, does he know how to code? I think that's what's really ridiculous is you get somebody with tons of experience. They have job references. Those people are going to tell you if they can't code or not. And if that's what you're trying to find out by a test, it's going to be a failure. But I do agree with you. Like the whiteboarding thing, it's huge. Um, can you can you solve problems? Can you collaborate with other people? Like, are you smart enough to ask a question rather than sit there and go, hmm, hmm, and try to figure it out? I, I can even recall one time I got asked how to write a query to bring back something. And I said, well, I've never done that before, but I guarantee you if I used Google right now, I could figure it out. Oh, you'll never find that. It's very proprietary. And when I did my search, it was literally the first, the answer was the first item on Google. That got me the job because he later told me, he's like, I never thought anyone could just Google the answer. I wouldn't think you anyone would know how. Well, when you've done it for a lot of years, you know the words to use, you know? So that's, that's kind of interesting. Um, so... Typically, how many interviews do candidates go through when they're seeking a job, like through the process that you use? They should only go. So, for example, for any role, depends on the leveling, right? So for more junior role, when I'm, somebody's out of school, um, the interview process should be probably two months max at that, if that. Um, it depends on level experience. If you're looking for somebody who's a senior director above, the average time to fill should be, I would say, four to six months. Um, but typically the ones I've done for anything that's, I would say anything that's individual contributor should be filled within 90 days. I have filled directors within 90 days because we had a structured plan of approach, but in terms of the numbers of interviews, it should typically go for any hiring manager. If you look at the funnel, I'm sure we know all the funnel questions. Um, it should typically be for every recruiter screen that's done. It should be at a, a the, if the recruiter and the hiring manager synced with each other appropriately, it should be for every 10 recruiter streams that done, I would say six uh, should be moving forward. So if you do uh, in terms of a 60% ratio, so six, six, 60% from hiring manager to recruiter screen. And then for that, the rest of that, it should be down all the way to the funnel. There should be a four to one offer ratio, ideally three to one offer ratio. 
um, towards the end. But the idea is that you want to make sure for somebody who goes through phone interviews, but the on-site interview, which I think is the most critical one and most significant one everyone talks about, is there should be about four to six on-site interviews max. And if somebody goes a, a four to six interviews, I would say after six interviews at the most happen and the hiring manager doesn't like anybody, that's really on the hiring manager. That looks really bad. You should really figure <laughs> it out. That's what I'm saying. Do your homework ahead of time. I mean, that's why you have a hiring, you have an internal resource to help you get there um, to really figure it out and flush it out. And I think people haven't really flushed out um, their bias yet. It's really, and bias is necessarily not a bad thing, um, but for the most part, people want to hire people exactly like them. And I remember this recently where this hiring manager want to hire this agro New York guy. I'm like, this guy is going to quit in three months because he doesn't want to listen to you because you're exactly like him. It's not going to work, right? So um, it's it's hard to watch. But like I said, as a recruiter, all we can do is offer advice. And if they want to take it, they will take it. But luckily, I've been very, very grateful and very fortunate they have over time. Could you share your thoughts on like um, DEI hiring, you know, diversity and equity hiring? Yeah, I think it's top of mind. I think it's top of mind because, like I said, people don't realize that diversity hiring is not only, first of all, I think people maybe, I'm just saying it might, if people don't, diversity hiring is not just hiring for race and gender and checking a box. You want to hire people who have different backgrounds, who went through differently from you, who think differently from you. And it's only been good for the business. I experienced it personally and I've seen how it works. And it's actually like an amazing team when you hire people who are just thinking very differently than you. And diversity is a huge um, essential part in that. So I think that diversity, um, I have a whole like spreadsheet on diversity um, resource groups like Lesbian Sue Tech, there's Afrotech, there's a ton out there. I have like a billion of Latinas in tech. Um, I'm a huge advocate for um, a lot of groups who are so qualified and nobody thinks about spending on this. I think a lot what's happening right now in tech is like we don't have money to spend on DEI hiring. I literally have an um, action plan where we spend $150 a month on DEI resources to really engage a different candidate pool. Um, it's something that really helps a company I've seen help IPO and do better. And it's something that is just the right thing to do. I've seen a lot of people from, I've gotten from um, diversity hiring resources where I've gone to conferences and we literally hired like three people within two weeks because not only did the people, you know, that had a great time with me because I represented the company, but they got a window to the fact that we're just showing up and supporting this diversity group. So that's why it's so important for companies to show up and saying, hey, we're not just in support of this as a checkbox. We need you because you're, you're going to help our company get better and make more money. If a company CEO is thinking just about the bottom line, you need to hire for diversity. That's it. So that's good. I mean, I, I actually agree with you on that. I think that um, the perspective that someone can bring to the table really matters, especially, you know, you're talking about startups um, and you talked about how rightfully so talk about how things change so rapidly. Um, and I think part of that, um, what helps that is bringing in people with a diverse viewpoint who can say, you know, if you, if we go in this direction with this process, 
I've noticed that these kind of things happen. But when we go in this direction, I've noticed these kind of things happen. And then as a group, people can figure out as a company, which direction they want to go. And that's one of the fun, actually, in my opinion, one of the fun things about working for a startup is the fact that things are changing. And if you get in early enough, um, you have an opportunity to influence those kind of changes and what direction the company goes in. But you know, I, I've experienced it. Like I, I got hired years ago by three guys, two were brothers and one was their best friend. And literally nothing was getting done because they would just agree on everything. If it was, if, if they said no, it was no. If they said yes, it was yes. And there was no discussion about whether it was a good idea or a bad idea. And at one point we had a management consultant who literally said, you guys are going to destroy your own business by insisting that you three are the only ones who have any say. So he made, he kind of insisted that they expand their executive team to include, at first it was six members, which of course caused a huge rift because the three of us would be on one side and those three would be on the other side. So we added a seventh member. Well, once we did that, they started to get frustrated because the votes would be four to three, five to two, four to three, five to two, four to three, five to two, against them. Yeah, it sounds like nepotism to me. That's pretty much what usually happens. What ended up happening was we went from a period where we were stuck at like $4 million in sales per year to $40 million in just a year because we started to open up our minds to other ideas and not be so um, myopic. Um, like, Like they'd make rules like, we, we were delivering food. Think Grubhub only a million years ago. Um, and they, they'd be like, we're only doing businesses because we only want like corporate lunches. Great. Then they'd go and look at a company to purchase, like to, to buy, and it would be 80% residential. And you'd say, well, you do realize that you keep saying they're making $2 million a year in sales, but we're going to shave 80% of that right off the top. Well, why are we doing that? No residential. Oh, but maybe we can try it. Well, no, we're not going to try it. We've made this. This is our rule. This is the direction our, we're taking the company. And that's how we're going to grow. Um, so I think had they, from the beginning, used the concept you're talking about of don't hire people who are exactly like you, hire people who maybe, you know, they fit with you, but they think differently than you. Well, then you now you're bringing new ideas to the table. And I think that's huge, huge, huge. So tell me, tell me a little bit about um, you know, what, what is it like being a talent acquisition manager? I mean, how stressful is this job? That is a great loaded question. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, it's fun. I will always work for a startup. And I love that you brought up earlier in your experience about, you know, the growing pains of people who are kind of hiring. And it always happens when people hire people like them or their brother. Right. And then when they hire people with different the people who are the original OGs or the people who know each other, they hate the growing pains because like, no, we're not going to have our way anymore. Right. Um, so those are big stress. I think a lot of thing I deal with is a lot of people when I I've experienced startups where it is stressful, where I've seen startups, what are in the process of growing up, you know, it's basically 10 or 15 people and they're all buddies. They're all best friends. They're probably very similar to each other. And then it gets to when it's 40 people and I've seen when it gets to 60 and a hundred and I've seen the growing pains for what I've seen where, okay, what works today when we're 15 people. Okay. Now we're 80 people. This isn't going to work anymore. And a lot of the people or the OGs are like, "Mm, I don't like this. And 
it's it's tough to watch, but it's natural. And so for me, I'm kind of immune to it now. Um, but it is difficult when um as a talent acquisition person who is really, I think the most important thing about working in a startup is that you have to have the growth mindset as a leader. So I mean that you have to, if you think you figured out life a hundred percent, you should probably not work at a startup. If you think you figured out things and good enough about 60, 70%. And I think as people get older, they realize they know less and less. Right. And it's been stressful for me in the sense that I really want to be able to pick the leaders I work with, but I don't get that option. And, um, being an influence, but it is stressful in the sense that, but I love the stress that I have because the opportunity to build and own things you would get is a feeling that you can be able to influence that you'll never get working at a traditional company. You probably will maybe in some companies because they have their own little um, incubators and all of that. But for me, I, I, I love it. I, the stress is insane. That's why I have a sense of humor. I literally remember breaking down a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, I don't want to do any of this, but I'm going to do all of this. Let me figure it out. Hold, please. And I got back to them in 30 minutes and figured it out. <laughs> but, you know, knowing how to be able to use sense of humor with it is so important because um, it saved my life. I mean, improv and stand-up comedy and all the humor, sense of humor that I've had to do, um, you have to get by. It's just like, you know, how doctors have to have a sense of humor or people have difficult jobs. Working at a tech startup in the tech community is is stressful. And some people take things really seriously. And sometimes I wish they wouldn't, but I don't have, I, if I can't, I heard that you can't control people. You can't waterboard them and make them do what you want. So you have to learn how to work around that. And luckily you will have the support to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I used to find, you know, as a CTO, I used to find the hiring process the most um, stressful and um, it it I had good leads for the different areas of my department, but um, I also had a plan for where where I wanted to take the business. Um, you know, at the technology part of the business, and it was a long term plan. So I always wanted to have at least a short conversation with any potential new hire, just to be sure that they were going to fit um, the direction we were going to go. And, you know, some positions, it meant periods of like two to three months of like insane workload. And, you know, I was really big on work-life balance. So I, I wanted them to understand that, yeah, you're going to go through these two or three months of craziness, but then we'll back off of you for a while while someone else is going through a couple of months of craziness. Um, but I hated, I actually hated, the taking the time for the interview process, despite the fact that I knew how important it was, just because sometimes you'd face two people and you're like, well, which one do I choose? You know, they both bring a lot of things to the table. Who do I choose? Um, and that's when I learned what you said is true. Like it comes down to, you can talk to that person and go, look, we didn't decide to hire you this time, but it's not a matter of if it's going to be when. You know, we want it, we want you on this team. It's just we don't have the space for you at the moment. Um, and I like that approach that you that you mentioned before because it lets them know that even though they didn't get picked up for this position, it's not a reflection on who they are and and their work ethic or anything like that. So, well, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate yeah. it. Um, why don't you let my listeners know where they can find you? Um, I know you have some some content up on Medium that they can look up, and I'll make sure that gets into the show notes as well so they can find you. 
Yeah, absolutely. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm going to be starting a website, trishpandia.com. I'm on there. Um, and I'm also going to be having some speaking engagements coming up. So yeah, follow me on LinkedIn for now. But yeah, um, I'm always reachable and things like that. Cool. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in to Gaining the Technology Leadership Edge. We hope you've had a great time with us learning everything you need to know to stay ahead of the technology curve. Remember, be curious, be updated on all the latest trends, and show them who's the boss. Until next time, we'll be back with plenty more techie tips and tricks so you can stay on top of your game. <music>